from the city of brotherly love, this is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just arrived to the season four debut of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strausser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete chaos. Today, we're going to chat software development. First, though, remember, please download the Shark Bite Biz app if you're on Android at the Google Play Store. And that's where you can find every single episode of the show, whether you want the audio version, you want the video version, the Shark Bite clips, everything is right there. Plus, you can buy our fabulous coffee right in the app. But if you don't want to use the app, that's fine. You can still get the freshest coffee known on earth at deadhousecoffee.com. Just make sure you use the code SHARK and you're going to get 20% off your order and we'll get all the proceeds to directly support us producing the biggest and best show we possibly can. Now let's get back to today's show. We're going to kick off season four with a great guest. Somebody who's going to tell you the difference between buy versus build when you need to invest into custom software development versus buying something that's already pre-built. So who do we have today? Mr. Ryan Weiss. Ryan Weiss is the co-founder and CEO of Weiss Software, which provides cost-effective web development services. After gaining 20 years of experience in shipping software, six years in building high-velocity development teams, publishing two books, acting as lead architect for countless projects, and being awarded Microsoft's MVP award three times, Ryan decided to transfer his skills to an entrepreneurial space. So, hey, without further ado, let's bring Mr. Ryan Weiss Right on in here. Business strategy. Ryan, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, man. Oh, no problem. So we have a tradition on the show. Very first question we ask every single person. What's your experience? What's your background? What do you do for a living? How'd you get there? Basically, in a nutshell, it's a loaded question, so watch out. What makes Ryan? Ryan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So essentially my essence is just that I'm uh, a tinkerer and a computer geek. Um, and I've been fortunate enough that those activities, um, ended up being things that I could make a career out of as I got older. Uh, some people, you know, their hobbies and passions don't end up working out that way. So definitely just kind of on a very fortunate ride. Um, I was raised overseas with my, um, my dad who was, a um, serial kind of wannabe and then uh, decently successful entrepreneur. And so I kind of got a really... Um, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that because I mean, serial, you you hear the word serial and I'm thinking, okay, there's a couple different ways you could be a serial. Which, which, which yeah. direction are we going here? <laughs> successful or not? Well, he was doing pitches at dinner. I call them dinner table pitches for most of my childhood. And then he finally had a business that became successful. And then that business ended and um, 
it was successful enough that the people who were involved started kind of going after each other and it kind of fell apart. Um, yeah. And then after that, he had gotten such good experience. He figured, finished his career in, uh, as a corporate executive. Um, <clears throat> but that had kind of planted the seed in me to starting a business one day. Um, and then just with um, my career, like I said, with the tinkering, I'm always doing stuff on the weekends and stuff like that. When I became a programmer uh, after college, I found um, I found myself... Uh, for one, I graduated into the recession, which caused uh, me to get laid off quite a bit for the first mm -hmm. four years. And then that made me really, really hungry to be one of the people who didn't get laid off. And what I noticed about those folks is that usually um, they were really good on the craft side. And then also I had a really deep knowledge of the business side. And so I decided to focus on the craft side. Uh, and that got me to where I was kind of just making a lot of um, having some, I guess, accomplishments, you might call them, um, around just getting involved with the community, which ended up leading to like me getting a few book deals. And then um, I got some That's awards cool. from Microsoft for um, uh, their MVP award, uh, which is not as exclusive as it sounds, but it's hard to get. But like, you know, there's probably a few hundred MVPs every year or whatever. Uh, and so I got that three times. And, and that led me to managing offshore teams, uh, mostly in India for companies like uh, Charles Schwab and Dell here in Austin. Um, mm -hmm. That was an extremely difficult thing to do well. And, um, and I had a few projects where I was on where I was doing that. And I just found it incredibly frustrating. If you've ever been on a support call with someone from India and it, the communication is hard and all uh, that kind of then you would um, imagine working with 30 people and having to make a challenging project land well you know what you know what I found with that I lived down in Mexico for probably about 15 years and I've noticed and then also I've lived in Peru too and I've worked with a lot of overseas people and this goes this isn't just for English I think this is for any language is that there's speaking the language but then there's truly comprehending the language. So my experience, like if I was working with an Indian developer, let's just say, or even just down there in Mexico, when I was living down in Mexico, trying to do business in Mexico in Spanish, I spoke Spanish, but I really didn't fully comprehend the Spanish. And that's kind of what led, I think, to a lot of the frustration earlier in my career. And I see that a lot with offshoring as well, too, with the language barriers. Yes, they speak English, but they don't really comprehend English to the level that we're, we're comprehending it to where it's almost like you're speaking two different languages. Do you agree, disagree with that? No, that's definitely one of the hurdles. Uh, and then uh, once you get past that hurdle, there's also some tremendous cultural uh, differences. And as far as like values and things like that, like um, what I've noticed is with the Indian teams I've worked with, um, they have a much bigger eye on just making stuff work mm -hmm. and not as much on like, is this the best possible way to do it? Now, that's a generalization. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my business uh, benefits from the fact that I kind of understand the different markets and, and, you know, the attributes of them. And my partner is, is in New Delhi. Um, and then on the U.S. side of the fence, you find that you might have people sitting around for months <laughs> deciding, mm -hmm. was that the best approach? And just kind of, you know, spending a lot of time on the uh, kind of creative side of it. And what my partner and I, what we saw as a huge opportunity, is like, wow, what if you combine those two worlds? Um, and then you've got where you're spending the time you need to, to make sure it's done well, but also mm -hmm. getting it done on time and, you know, with high speed. And, and so Prashant and I, basically, that's my partner in New Delhi. 
um, when we worked together, that was the, uh, the setup that we got there. So I live here in Austin, which is a progressive town for technology. I spend a lot of time in the community uh, talking at conferences and, you know, sharing notes and all that kind of stuff. So I stay right up on top of the bleeding edge. And then I'm able to distill that stuff down, pull out the stuff that aligns with our company's values. Um, and we've been able to create a company that focuses on uh, our motto is affordable, predictable development. Um, and that's actually, um, it sounds like super obvious and simple, like, yeah, everybody would want to do that. But we <laughs> right. found not a lot of people do that because it's really difficult to do. That's why all of the large companies were hiring me to set up these teams uh, offshore from India is because if you do it right, there's some really attractive attributes to it. Um, we, we basically have built more of a software factory and less of a uh, blacksmith warehouse where everyone's just banging on metal until it looks like a sword and kind of, you know, there's a little difference in how everyone's doing the work. Um, we, we approach right. it differently. And, and, and as, as that analogy, if you follow it through, you would see why, uh, why you would prefer the one to the other. Sometimes you want a really nice, uh, you know, custom piece that shows the uh, work of the craftsman. A lot of times you just want something that does what it does predictably and uh, is affordable, you know, so we're on right, that side. Right, right, like an MVP, like a minimal viable product, which is such a buzzword these days. Yeah, and so that's one of our four pillars. Uh, we say that there's four pillars to um, making our affordable, predictable model work, and it's being smart about teams, tools, process, and features. And so the feature part is talking about making sure that folks, uh, I always use analogies um, to talk about software. And the custom home building analogy is really good for custom software. And if you've ever watched the shows where, uh, you know, people are shopping for real estate and they're mm -hmm. always like, okay, this is all the stuff we have to have, you know? And, and they're like, all right. all right, fine. And they show them the house and it's like three times their budget, you know? And they're mm -hmm. like, okay, well, maybe we can be a little further from downtown. And it's the same thing with software. When you talk to folks um, and before they've actually seen how expensive it is and how hard it is. Um, they'll have a really expensive wish list of things. And so part of our, um, our journey with folks is to kind of sit them down and say, look, let's just create a prioritization of the features you need and, um, and we'll put your budget over that and then you can get exactly what you need because uh, right. you know, you're, you're building a 747, but you're just driving to the corner store. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we a good example of what you're saying is my day job I do with Vision 33 um, we do ERP for small to mid-sized businesses with SAP Business One and Sage Intact. And that is probably one of the biggest things that we see as well, too, to where it's like they want everything. They want it all. They want it the most complex. They want their whole wish list. And it's like, no, 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 no. We can do that. Okay, but you got to remember, you know, doing an ERP implementation is kind of like a full body transplant. And you have a business to run as well as implement and learn this new software solution. So while we technically could, you're probably going to be overwhelmed. So what we try to do is we try to do more of a, a phased approach. What do you actually need to be running with on the software day one for go live? And then from there, once you're stable, everybody gets it, you know, they're, they're a little bit quicker doing their transactions. Then we have a solid foundation to build off of to start to get some of those wish list items done. Sounds like you have kind of the same philosophy. Absolutely. Like, um, we always want folks to let's get, you know, a dollar of revenue 
or a user <laughs> active on the system before we get too ambitious with the feature set, you know? So let's just make sure that people are actually going to use it, that they're actually going to spend money on it. Um, and then we'll start adding all of these, um, you know, things that are, are differentiators, you know? Um, how, how important is it then for you as far as speed, like the speed of going live and getting them in using their solution as quick as possible versus giving them the wish list. My experience is the longer that something drags on, the longer it is for a company to feel that ROI, you know, the the, the harder it's going to get to ultimately get and keep that customer happy long-term. Yeah. I mean, there's a few different folks that you're going to have to keep interested and the stakeholders are going to be one, you know, the folks who are paying the bills. Um, so we like to show working software and deployed environments within a week of when we start. Um, wow. And then we agile processes. And so that first working piece of software is going to be pretty simple. You know, maybe it just shows a customer list or a list of projects or something like that. Uh, but it'll look like what the final product's supposed to look like, and it'll be out deployed in the in the uh, real world. Um, if you are hiring teams to do things for you, that would be probably my number one thing that I would say you have to insist on, because what happens is folks will, um, there's a lot of things about our industry, my industry, our industry, whatever, that embarrasses me as far as the software consulting. <laughs> and one is where folks will get in there and they'll be billing people for three months, four months, whatever. And, and the people who have uh, signed contracts with them, they feel like the contracts are protecting them. And they're like, oh, okay, these people are guaranteeing. We're just giving them 25% up front, and then we don't have to pay the rest until this happens, until that happens. Well, a lot of times, that 50% or whatever that you pay before you get to the end of the project will cover a lot of their costs. And um, mm -hmm. they'll just get three, four months out, and they try to put the system out and, and deploy it. And then that just drags on and drags on and there's bugs and there's issues and all this kind of stuff. And by the time you tap out, you're four months out or whatever. Um, and most likely you'll go to another agency and they won't take over that code. Like you, people right. seem to think that software is an asset like everything else. Um, but it's not, it's, it's most of the time a liability, unless you work with a firm. I just had that same exact uh, discussion and they're like, Hey, look, we're having this one company do an integration for us. And, uh, you know, we want you guys to add onto it. And it's kind of like, we don't really know their code and it might not be to the best practices as far as our standards and how we do it. And it's going to cost you a lot more time, money and frustration for us to get in there and add these things on more than likely than it would be just for you to pay them to finish it out. Yeah, yeah, that the rewrite thing is a big factor. And so I define uh, the asset value of software as being how likely and easy it is for another team to take over. So we start all of our projects with, um, we have some boilerplates on our website, on GitHub that are, you know, you can get to on our website and things like that. Right. Um, and those are basically described how to start the uh, application, how to deploy the application. That even talks about uh, the goals of the architecture. <laughs> right. Um, we have a section on goals and values. And the reason we do that is because um, whenever you get in with another team, there's a, uh, developers, you may have seen this, you may not have seen it, but they tend to have a tendency to argue about pedantic things. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. Tab spaces and all this kind of stuff. And and the analysis paralysis is very expensive for stakeholders. And like I said, we try to focus on affordable and predictable delivery. And so if we start with these are our values, these are our goals, we want to be able to deploy fast. We want to have high developer ergonomics, uh, et cetera. Um, and if everyone, you can get people to agree to goals and values a lot more easily than you can to patterns and architectures and techniques. And so if we have that and everyone agrees, these are the patterns, then once you get outside of that 20 that gets you 80 that we always clearly define in our readme, um, when you get into some architectural conversations, they go much quicker because you can say, well, that one we can't use because it doesn't satisfy this one goal that we all agreed on. Um, right. <laughs> and I mean, right, right. I know that sounds really kind of like, I don't know, is it passive aggressive? I don't know what the right word is. But like, <laughs> but like, it's really, I feel like um, it really helps our projects a lot, you know? And, and it just no, really that's gets good. And I agree too, you know? Yeah, no, no, it's good. That's solid info. So let's talk about buy versus build. When is it a good time to invest in custom software development? So this is a, a really uh, interesting thing I've been focusing on lately. I, I um, I got invited to the Forbes Council, and my first article I'm publishing for them is going to be on this topic. Um, I feel like every single business owner and every um, executive in a larger company, this is one of the key things that they have to um, to think about with technology. There's no way that you can have a company without technology, as we all know. Um, right. And and so one of the key things as a decision maker, you're going to have to decide is whether or not um, we take something off the shelf to solve this particular problem in our business or we build something custom. And so just like with a custom home, going back to that, um, it's the same kind of trade-offs, right? So if, say it wasn't a custom home, say it's a shed, right? Everyone right. has a shed. You know how a shed works. You, you just, you buy a shed because like that's a very common thing and there's a lot of good options out there off the shelf. So in your business, right. if you, it, it, it's like why reinvent the wheel when you're talking yeah. about something like a shed? It's not the most important part of your home. And when you talk to business owners or you talk to stakeholders and, and larger companies or um, executives, and you ask them, what does your business do? The good business leaders all have their pitch down, right? And it, it's around their differentiators. Most likely your differentiators is where you're going to find opportunities to kind of have a competitive advantage with a custom system. Uh, when it comes to things that aren't differentiators, like paying invoices, <laughs> you mm. know, uh, communications with your team, um, you know, managing your taxes, all that kind of stuff that every other business out there does, um, there's going to be, I could throw a rock and probably hit a software company in Austin that has a SaaS product that does that, you know? So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're going to have a lot to choose from, you know, you'd be crazy to do a custom invoicing system unless your invoicing is very complex, you know, maybe you're a concrete company and it goes into all these calculations around how you're pouring or whatever. Um, and but, that's where, like, from my perspective, being with what we do, that's where, I mean, those solutions are already built. I mean, even if you're that concrete company, like you're saying, between either SAP or Sage, one of those two solutions, you know, yeah, is it going to take some tailorization yes because the parameters of how you can tailorize a software very robust okay but you're not actually going in there and hardly custom you know doing a hard customization on the code you're using the software within its um you know within the features that are already 
there you're just putting those workflows in place for your specific business practices. Right. And so some examples that to codify it, um, we have a there's a company here in Austin that screen uh, or powder coats uh, logos onto Yetis. Um, like in Texas, Yetis are super popular. Mm -hmm. um, so all the other software in the company, you probably could get off the shelf. But when it comes to creating an interesting shopping experience for folks by doing that customization, that's probably going to be something that a custom system would help with. Or like when it comes to your back, um, your manufacturing piece, you probably would right. want some custom software in that piece as well, uh, depending on what what you're doing there you know like um and and then another company it all depends on what your secret sauce is you know exactly. the secret sauce to your 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 business i mean we run into that too and it's like hey when we go out and do a, a blueprint and for people that don't know what a blueprint is when in the erp world that's a business process workflow where we'll go out there and we'll document every business process you have and then we'll translate that into best practices, trying to automate as much as we can that makes sense for the original phase one. Now, when we give that document to some customers, they might push back like, hey, 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 like, yeah, I guess this technically is a best practice, but that kind of spoils our secret sauce. We think that this is part of the magic of what makes our business happen. And we have to keep this this way or adjust this to maximize it in a different avenue. And then, you know, we make those accommodations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another one though, we've seen um, sometimes the uh, products off the shelf products in the space can be um, cost prohibitive mm -hmm. or you could outgrow them. Right. You know what I mean? So like um, we uh, will often tell folks um, we use a lot of SaaS offerings. So for example, like, with AWS, you know, if you're hosting mm -hmm. your your, your your code on AWS, we lean towards more platform as a service type offerings where you just say, this is a website and you stick it up there and they take care of all the details and it it'll just scale up and scale down on its own and you don't have to worry about all the details. Well, if your business takes off and all of a sudden you've got 50,000 active customers at all time, uh, your bill is going to go really high. Yeah, you know, and then that's where if you have some really fine-tuned DevOps come in and kind of like containerize the whole thing, and you know, use like these spot instances that are cheaper and wake them up, and there's all kinds of stuff you can do. Um, you'll find that you, the value you have the volume to support it, and you get economies of scale on that effort now. Whereas, um, so that's another inflection point is kind of um, to scale, right? You might look for right, right, right. Uh, no, totally great info right now. So one of the things that I always talk about, and I've talked about it on this show, but I also talk about it every day. Whenever one of my sales reps has a um, a prospect, you know, I tell them the same thing. There's two ingredients for a successful go live for your business. The first one is the software solution, you know, you have to have the right solution because if you pick the bad solution, doesn't matter who's implementing it, you're still going to have a failed product. You're going to have a failed go live. The second one is the actual partner, the people who are implementing it. If you don't have the right team implementing your software, you're going to have a failed go live just as if you pick the wrong solution. I think both keys are critical. I'd love to hear from you about your five red flags to watch out for 
when hiring a software development agency? Yeah, so um, I don't know if I'll remember all five off the top of my head, but I, um, I definitely um, like to share that notes with folks. Um, generally speaking, uh, the main theme is if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Um, and so one of the things we always warn folks to look out for, um, don't feel comfortable that the contracts are going to save you. Um, so if people are giving you like these money back guarantee type scenarios, like, oh, there's no risk, um, they're not being respectful of your budget because, uh, you know, there's always going to be some kind of risk there. Um, and you know, the, the thing is, if, if you get locked in, what the agencies know is that once you start doing work with them, it, it's extremely expensive to switch team. Right. So, yeah. um, so they're going to get you in there and, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, we'll give you your money back and all that kind of stuff. Most likely by the time you get to that point, um, that you're going to have paid 50% of the project or something like that. And a lot of companies just operate under a model where they'll get that far with it. And then they abandon the project, just like if you're doing construction or consulting at your house. Uh, so that's one thing to look out for too good to be true estimates, you know, yeah. when you're shopping. <laughs> If an estimate is the cheapest and it also has the least amount of details, it's not a real estimate, right? Um, right. If, if you're going to see it's just a, a sales estimate, number, it's just like, hey, you, you know, whatever, you know, we know this yeah. is going to blow. Maybe this will stick. Um, when a, a real estimate, in my opinion, uh, or one that I would feel comfortable paying, it, there's lots of agencies out there that um, we have a, a one that we um, we think operates similar to us called Cool Stack Labs. If you go on their website, they show their examples of their estimates. If you see examples of our estimates, they're incredibly detailed. Um, they have lots of line items on them that talk about every single piece of the uh, project. And, and the, none of the line items are terribly big. There's paddings for known unknowns, but not like just crazy paddings, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, the paddings make sense and, and, and they talk to a, a mature process. And most importantly, like when they take you through it, you can tell like, wow, these guys have really spent some time figuring this stuff out. Uh, oh, they, yeah. They, de they definitely take it serious. I totally, I totally agree with that. Our statement of work, same exact thing to where it lists out every area of the yeah. system, what's occluded, what's in scope, what's out of scope, what's the limitations yeah. of what's in scope. And that's kind of how we build ours. Now, our sales reps, <laughs> you know, God love them. They hate it oftentimes because that's like, oh, you're giving them a shopping list. Then they're going to be like, oh, well, why is that out of scope? Well, because they wanted to be at this budget. And realistically, you know, like, for example, MRP is something, uh, material resource planning that we'll hear, oh, why is that not in scope? Or fit? Well, it's a brand new system. I mean, you don't have the data in the system to support to be able, the historical data usually to do that right out of the gate. Six months down the road, yeah, you should start having enough data to where you can do some real MRP planning and stuff like that. So there's some explanations like that that we go through. But having a very detailed, structured, I think, statement of work, ultimately, it, it shows that the company that is looking at your project actually understands your business and the scope of work that they're about to perform. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. Um, and then other things I'd say you, you would want to watch out for is, you know, um, you, you should see an awful lot of process. Um, you don't want lean processes most likely. 
depending yeah. on what you're building. I mean, if you're trying to build the next spaceship for a billionaire, maybe not, but like for most, <laughs> most, a lot uh, of that's going on right now. Yeah, There's a lot of that. If you're one of the guys who gets that project, you probably have a pretty detailed process, but you know, um, a big part of our sales cycle is taking folks through our uh, full life cycle from, you know, napping to revenue process. And, you know, this is, this is what each stage looks like. Um, this is about how long that stuff takes, um, et cetera. And then I would also expect that if you're going to see numbers, you shouldn't still see the real numbers until people have worked on it for a minute. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like you're not going to get real numbers. Like we give really wild estimates on the first call. We'll say, oh, four to six months, maybe, you know. And, mm-hmm. and so we can give you kind of a, a rough ballpark uh, on that first call just so so we, you know, we're respectful of people's time and they're respectful of ours if we're not even talking yeah. the same language. You know, some people think a custom system is fifteen hundred dollars, you know. Um, but um <laughs> you gotta so make sure you're in the same ballpark, basically. Exactly. And, exactly. and that's same thing, you know. It's like if I hear on a phone call that you have XXXX, we've done enough of those projects. This is what you should be at. But until we really peel back the layers of the onion, it's really hard to give a firm number. Usually once we do the blueprinting though, we have that whole business process analysis. That is the instruction manual and it's got, you know, a little bit of buffer into it, like you said, but that's usually where you're going to get more fine tuned. And unless you forgot to tell us that you have a strawberry farm and you expect us now to implement the strawberry farm, you know, you shouldn't get any change orders because we really peeled back all the layers and, you know, it should be pretty solid, I think, by that point going forward. Yeah, I don't see how you can do it without discovery. And I have a clickbait article called The Secret to, it's on Medium, The Secret to a Successful Software Estimation is in a Dirty Word, dot, dot, dot. And then the dirty word is waterfall. Uh, you have to, you're doing some flavor of waterfall when you're doing discovery and upfront planning. But for SOW type projects, um, which I think are appropriate when you're first building a relationship with, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you might get into a partnership, but we always like to start with the SOW so folks, so we can prove our value, you know, with some guardrails. Um, right. And, uh, and I think that's, um, that's, a, that's the right way to go with it, you know. Uh, and yep. what I've seen, and a few firms I've worked with and stuff like that do this, when you get through with the discovery, what I think is really nice to see is that every line item, we will actually put it into JIRA or whatever mm-hmm. your process management tool you're using. And I've seen other agencies do that where they actually have links to the items in the, uh, in the estimate. Um, yeah. And then you just tag those as MVP, right? Mm-hmm. And then that makes it super easy to understand your change request flow because anything right. gets added to the system and doesn't have the MVP tag, okay, that's new stuff. And so what we do... Right is we feel that discovery allows us go creep is so hard to to manage especially you, you, what drives me nuts is that sometimes with these projects i mean you like to have the executives and the, all the the principal people involved but for whatever reason sometimes you, you know it just doesn't work out like that you always have that person that shows up at the end and hey. they're like oh what about Change me everything. and then Right, uh, and, and they want to throw this or that in, yeah. and it's such, it's such a pain in the butt. But I mean, we have ways that we kind of, you know, mitigate that during our process, and I'm sure you do as well too, right? Yeah, we've learned the lesson that you need to 
we've had where we built the system and then they are like, okay, this is the person who's going to use it. And we're like, wait, none of y'all were the ones that were going to use it. <laughs> like, uh, uh, and they come in and they're like, this totally isn't going to work. And we're like, wait a minute. How could y'all not let, cause like we went through the whole process, assuming that, you know, this person here was going to be using the system, but it turns out they had someone else. Um, so we usually, uh, you know, lesson learned on that. We always make sure that we're talking to the actual users. <laughs> uh, the users, to, the stakeholders, everybody involved. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the day, the um, the folks who are managing the users <laughs> think mm -hmm. they know what the system's going to do. But then as soon as the users get it, they're like, wait a minute, I can't. I mean, how am I going to do X, Y, Z? It, you, how would that even work? And everyone's just like, well, I don't know. <laughs> the the frontline workers need to be involved to Early. a degree. I don't think you need them actually dictating every part of the system, but they do need to have at least at the the lower level manager level. Like for example, I need to give a thumbs up on it. You know? Right, right. You don't need the the person who's actually going to be picking and packing orders in a warehouse to be validating that. But maybe that warehouse manager that knows what his or her team actually does, that's the type of person that you would want involved to make sure that it's being set up to work for their team. Yeah, I would probably in that scenario want to get at least one of those folks to like try it early and, you know, review yep. the uh, frames and try it early in the process. Um, sometimes you even just get into who moved my cheese, you know, which maybe yeah. it doesn't matter. <laughs> maybe it, it, it might not matter. It might matter. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah. And I've seen really, really good designs go wrong. Uh, quick anecdote on that. Um, I worked for a company that was building as a consultant that was building a, um, a seismic system where you mm -hmm. have these devices in the ground and you create this grid yep. and you blow up things and you read underneath. So they decided to come out with a wireless system. Um, and, and so that all this research and development, years of work went into creating this wireless system. They got the wireless system out in the field and the guys were like, man, these things are really hard to find. I mean, we have bushes and snow and all this kind of stuff. And so they ended up tying ropes <laughs> <laughs> from each of the devices back to each other. And then it was very obvious that the wireless mm. system was completely unnecessary because wow. uh, at the end of the day, the guys in the field needed the, the devices to be connected just as a, right. a practical matter of how they do their work, you know? Um, yeah. And so that that's was like a, that's a disconnect. very expensive mistake where if they just talked to the guys in the field. <laughs> yeah, it, it could have easily been resolved. So we have yeah. time for about one more, more question. And, you know, I think this goes to the heart of what your business is, what your business does. And, uh, you know, I, I'd really like to hear it from you as far as hiring a software development company, okay? Whether you're going onshore or offshore, you know, what is the, you know, what's the best solution and what works for most companies? Sure. So, uh, like most things in software, the best answer is always it depends. You know, mm -hmm. um, and so I would say again back to you know if if you're trying to get the SpaceX SpaceX rocket not to blow up the next time it lands on the launch pad, that's probably a different team than if you're building uh, you know another forms over data application. Um, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, I think depending on the level of innovation that's involved you can kind of figure out what kind of team you need. 
you might not need everyone on your team to be wearing a cape and a superhero developer um, right. if, if you're doing. And so what we've optimized on is taking the folks that are wearing the capes and spreading those across a lot of projects um, and then taking all that knowledge. And like I said, creating a factory approach that allows us to create um, affordable, predictable solutions for a lot of projects. You know, if, uh, if you're building an app that does things that are similar to things that have already been done out there, it's a great approach. Now, on the other hand, my Mercedes uh, SUV that we got this year has all kinds of technology in the dash mm -hmm. cam that like that was not built with a team like what we created because it's incredibly innovative computer vision type stuff. Right. The GPS system in there is really, really clever. Uh, it can tell when you have a trailer hitch in and when it does, it shows a different display and that display does all kinds of cool stuff. Um, you probably want a very different team for something like that. So I think the main factor is figuring out where you are on the innovation curve uh, and what your budget looks like. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Hey, this has been a pretty fun and formative conversation. You enjoying it so far? Absolutely, man. I like uh, <laughs> a few podcasts, and I love the energy on this. And like we were talking before, I love that Marilyn Manson's in the background there. That's oh what... yeah, yeah, Marilyn Manson, <laughs> Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie, Saint Nick Foles. We got uh, Aerosmith. We we got everybody back there. You should see the other wall. I got Billy Bob Thornton. I got Steven Tyler, Joe Perry. I, uh, I have so much rock memorabilia. I don't even have places to put it anymore. It's crazy. But hey, last question for you, Ryan. How can people find you? How can they digitally stalk you online? For stalking, I'm not super sure, but the easiest way to get in touch with me <laughs> is to go to our website, uh, vitesoftware.com. Um, and there's a little pop-up that is a robot, but the robot will connect you with me. If I'm available, it'll come straight to my phone and I can reply right then. If I'm not available, it'll allow you to schedule a call. Um, and, and that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. I am on Twitter, but not very active. Um, you know, so really, uh, that's the best way. Okay. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. I uh, hope you enjoyed being Sharkbait. And uh, definitely looking forward to getting you back on in the future as we uh, progress through this uh, pandemic that doesn't end. Yeah, that sounds great. And I really appreciate you having me on, David. It's a really fun show. So thanks. Thanks for the invite. Cheers. Wow, such an awesome chat with Riot, right? First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor. Hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out, Please share us out to your network, your colleagues, your friends, your family. Get us out there wherever you dwell on the interwebs, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, anywhere out there in the web. Please share us out there. Help people discover Ryan Vice and his amazing company. Now let's get back to our rock star guest, Ryan, okay? This is an ever important episode. And the interview we had today, I think was really kind of critical. Companies are shorthanded. They are ever more having to reach into the hands of custom development to fill the gaps left behind by inflated pricing and the difficulty of hiring people to fill gaps. They're looking for software, for technology to fill those gaps in the company so that they can continue to operate. One of the biggest things I think I think, and I believe, is how to make the software development process 
more predictable and affordable. And that was one of Ryan's main talking points. That's something that really resonates with me. I work in the ERP world. You all know that by now. I deal with SAP and Sage products mostly. But what I do does fall in line with what Ryan was discussing. There are things that you can do to easily help mitigate the cost of your software project, whether custom development or even rolling out an ERP like our business does. Know what you want. Know your pain points and make sure that the company you're working with has a tried, tested, and true methodology. Don't be the guinea pig. Most people, I think, well, not most people, but most importantly, I think scope creep is one of the biggest areas that makes a successful deployment, okay? Well, scope creep is one of the things that makes a successful deployment difficult because people end up adding things into the product at a later stage after you've already went through and did your design documents, your business process review, your blueprint, or whatever it may be. So you really need to differentiate between the needs versus desires. Push the desires off and keep it to the needs for your initial rollout. The old adage, you know, kiss, keep it simple, stupid, rings so true with software. Get up get running, and get live as quick as possible so that you can get an ROI. You can usually, 99% of the time, whatever you're building, again, custom software development like Ryan does, ERP like we do, these platforms are usually meant to be built off of. You can continue adding to them as time goes on. You don't need everything, every bell, every whistle for that initial go live, separate it, get that ROI, and then continue developing off of that. Awesome stuff, Ryan. Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story to us. Please, people, go out there, check out the Vice Software LLC. Ryan, obviously, he's a dude. He knows his stuff. Great person. Great interview. Thank you again. So gracious for him coming on. Question of the day. Where do you draw the line between buy versus build? Let us know in the comments down below. Do you want to be on the show? If so, send out an email. Interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. Please, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that little join button. You know, you can become a baby shark and support the channel for $3 a month. If not, understand money through big tech isn't a big popular thing. Just head on over to deadhousecoffee.com. Okay, you're going to get the freshest coffee that is roasted, steeled, and shipped within a 24-hour period to your doorstep. You get 20% off if you use the code SHARK. We'll get all the proceeds to continue growing this channel. You all know this by now, but I'll say it once again. I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Fight Fizz. We'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. 
We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 